Turning your Bibles with me to the book of Joshua. We're coming down the home stretch in this book we've been examining for some time now. Joshua 22 is our text for this morning. Joshua 22, 23, and 24 are the conclusion to this book. Uh, As you look at these three chapters, there are three holy convocations. They're having congregational meetings here. Uh, The main part of the story is done with the conclusion of chapter 21. The book of Joshua is about claiming the promise of God, the land that God had given them. And they claim that uh, promise uh, through chapter 21. Uh, They have all the land. The Levites uh, have been assigned Levitical cities. They have identified cities of refuge. Uh, The land is dispersed, and so we come to chapter 21. War is over, and now the two and a half tribes, the 40,000 soldiers that came Uh, to the western bank to fight with the Israelites, uh, all of them, for seven years. They're going to go back home. Chapter 23 is uh, yet another congregational meeting, and chapter 24 is the final congregational uh, meeting in this book. So uh, the book of Joshua today and uh, the chapter we're looking at is chapter uh, chapter 22. If you did not bring a Bible with you, uh, page 229 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. Uh, 229 in the uh, Pew Bible. As I prepare my messages from week to week, uh, I regularly consult a web page that is sponsored by Christianity Today. It's entitled PreachingToday.com. It's a site designed by preachers and for preachers. The main reason I use it is because it has a lot of illustrations that I find to be helpful. A lot of the pictures that you see us use on Sunday morning are from that web page. A lot of the stories that I share on Sunday morning are from uh, that web page. And so it's kind of routine for me uh, to type in some sort of a topic and then find 150, 200 illustrations I can systematically work through. Uh, This last week, I typed in the topic unity in the church and found there were 5,837 illustrations on that topic. Well, I was curious, so I typed in the phrase disunity in the church and found there are 5,755 illustrations on that topic. Well, even more curious, I typed in the word Jesus and found there were 74 uh, illustrations on the name Jesus. I typed in the word love, knowing love is kind of broad, it's kind of out there. found there were 801 illustrations on the word love. And finally, I typed in the word encouragement, another kind of generic word, and found there were 98 illustrations on the word encouragement. But 5,755 illustrations on the subject of disunity in the church. Now, I don't know if that shocks you a bit. It kind of shocked me when I uh, looked at it. You get the impression that maybe these preachers who are designing this web page for uh, preachers are kind of hung up on uh, disunity in the church. Now, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that it's an issue. As you look at John chapter 17, it's the last prayer that Jesus Christ prayed as he's praying for his disciples in that prayer. The heart of Jesus prayer is that he's praying that his disciples might be one, that they would be unified, that they might have love for one another. If we ask ourselves, as the Apostle Paul is writing his epistles, what was the number one concern that Paul had for the church? Well, it would be unity in the church. You read first Corinthians In 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, there were some who were of Apollos, some who were of Peter, uh, some who were of Jesus. And there was division in the church. You read about through the first three chapters. You read 2 Corinthians, and now the division is about Paul. 
questions about who Paul was and what Paul was doing. And does he really have the authority to do what he does? You look at the book of Philippians. uh, There are two ladies. uh, I I think of the Warren Worsby designation, Odious and Soon Touchy. Uh, Yodia and Syntyche was their uh, real names. But they were struggling with one another. You look at the book of Ephesians. And you find out there were women that were going door to door in the book of Ephesians, stirring up other women, causing them to even to come to the point of losing their faith. There were heretics in the church at, at Ephesus uh, that were causing disunity in the church. You look at the book of Galatians and you find out in Galatians there were people challenging Paul's authority, thinking he had no right to even address these Galatian churches. And you find out in the book of Galatians, Paul even confronts Peter because at one point Peter and Paul had a, a, a difference of opinion, which has led a lot of liberal scholars, at least, to say there's a Peter kind of thing and a Paul kind of thing that we kind of goof up in the church of Jesus Christ today. But the point is, you look at the Pauline epistles, the number one concern for the church, or the number one issue was unity in the church. I, I suppose it shouldn't surprise us then, as we come to the book of Joshua, uh, to find that in the book of Joshua, uh, unity becomes a concern in chapter 22. It is the fundamental issue of this chapter. And like most stories, uh, this is laid out for us like a drama. Uh, There are uh, three scenes in this drama. Uh, In the first scene, we find out how good it was because uh, verses 1 through 9 describe the unity that was evident among all these people of God, these soldiers that have been fighting uh, with one another for seven years. Then we find out how quick it can turn uh, in the scene after that in verses 10 through 12. And then we see that the bulk of this story is uh, how these believers in God made it right. So verses uh, 1 through 9, how good was it? Well, we have the uh, two and a half uh, tribes that had come across the Jordan River, these 40,000 soldiers uh, that had been fighting uh, with the rest of the Israelites for about uh, seven years. Verse 3, for a long time now to this very day, you've not deserted your brothers but have carried out the mission the Lord gave you. That is, fighting to claim the promised land. Now the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised. Return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of Jordan. So in these uh, first four verses, uh, we find out that the reason why the Esprit de Corps was so high is because these soldiers had fought together, at least by my calculations, Uh, For seven long years, Uh, they'd seen the Jordan River back up 26 miles. They had marched around the city of Jericho and seen those walls come down. Uh, They were there when the sun stood still. They were also there those, by my estimation, five years where they're doing the campaign in the north. And there wasn't any miracles. It was just grinding it out, doing the work of a soldier for long, five long, wearying years. And now they're rejoicing that the war is done. We get to claim the spoils. We get to go home. General Colin uh, Powell has identified at least the emotion that is expressed here. uh, As he was talking about the the attitude of soldiers during Desert Storm. Uh, Sam Donaldson once asked a soldier from the Desert Storm campaign, how do you think the battle will go? Are you afraid? The soldier responded by saying, we'll do okay, we're well trained, and I'm not afraid. And I'm not afraid because I'm with my family, he continued. The other soldier shouted, tell him again, he didn't hear you. The soldier repeated, this is my family. 
We will take care of each other. Colin Powell uh, adds, that story never fails to touch me or audiences that I address. It's a metaphor for what we have to do as a nation. We have to start thinking of of America as a family. We have to stop screeching at each other, stop hurting each other. Instead, start caring for and sacrificing for and sharing with each other. We have to stop constantly criticizing which is the way of the malcontent and instead get back to the can-do attitude that made America. We have to keep trying and risk failing in order to solve this country's problems. We cannot move forward if cynics and critics swoop down and pick us apart, uh, pick apart anything that goes wrong to the point where we lose sight of what is right and decent and uniquely good about America. Now, that was the kind of attitude, I believe, that was going on in these initial four verses. Uh, the soldiers were excited. I, this is a Near Eastern setting. You can picture them going up and embracing one another and giving them those kisses on the cheek that Near Eastern soldiers would do and remembering the times that they uh, had together and saying, now, uh, you can't do email. Uh, we can't uh, see you on TV, but, you know, we'll send our donkey or something back and forth. And we'll, we'll, we'll do lunch sometime. I mean, this was a, a warm kind of a experience that they had. We continue on in the next verses and we find out how good this really was, because in verses five through nine, uh, we see something else here. Uh, Joshua blesses them, uh, commends them uh, for the work that they had done and then gives this warning. Now, be careful not to turn away from God, which is probably the critical thought in this entire chapter. If we think this is only about unity, we miss the point. The critical thought is don't stray from following God. And then as uh, this section continues, uh, you find out that the soldiers that went back went back as rich men. Uh, They went back with silver and gold and garments and cattle. Just as a footnote, we can say how stupid does Achan look now for stealing a little gold and burying a a Babylonian garment when he could have gone uh, home as a rich man if he had just waited for, uh, for God's timing. But they're going back as rich men. Obviously rejoicing, taking uh, the spoils of victory back home with them. This was the highlight, high point, at least emotionally, uh, for these soldiers. And then it takes us one verse, only one verse, and a river to see everything turn suddenly. Because as you skip down to uh, verses 10 through 12 of Joshua 22, we read, When they came to uh, Galiloth, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an imposing altar. Literally, the Hebrew text says, a look-see altar. What that means, this was something that you could see for miles away, a huge altar. Uh, They built it that size so it could be seen. Verse 11, and when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gilaloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. You say, what in the world happened? I hear all these brothers hugging and kissing and telling one another how wonderful their last seven years were and rejoicing in the victory of spoils. And in one verse, now we find out they're ready to go to war. What happened? Well, a couple of things we need to know about the text. It's rather suggestive uh, that where the nine and a half tribes were was at Shiloh. Shiloh was the site now where the tabernacle 
uh, was going to be kept permanently until the temple was built by Solomon. Now, the tabernacle was the place where the Israelites did their sacrificing. They had the tabernacle with them as they wandered uh, through the wilderness. Uh, They took it with them all through their uh, exploits uh, in the book of Joshua. But at the end, as the battle has been won, the tabernacle finds its permanent spot in Shiloh. Now, uh, in the New Testament, you see in John chapter 4, the uh, the debate between the woman at the well uh, and Jesus about where is the right place to worship. Is it at Mount Gerizim or is it in Jerusalem? I mean, it's uh, that's kind of the point at issue here. Where is the right place for worship to take place? That is this these sacrifices. Well, it's always been in the tabernacle. The tabernacle now is at Shiloh. That's where the nine and a half tribes are. That's where it's going to stay. What are you doing making another place to sacrifice on the Jordan River? It's not the right place to sacrifice. Now, as you look in the text, you'll see that the two and a half tribes don't dispute that. They readily acknowledge uh, that if it if they were making this altar as a place for sacrifice, they deserve to die. Go ahead and kill us. Kill us right now if you think that's what we really were doing, because it would have been wrong for us uh, to create another place to have sacrifices apart from where the tabernacle is uh, in Shiloh. So that's that's the issue at stake here. And so the uh, nine and a half tribes are ready to say, let's kill them. Now, you can think about this, uh, you know, a a river dividing these troops, misunderstanding uh, dividing it and. We can think about what happens with denominationalism uh, in America today or any kind of uh, division that occurs in any church. Uh, I came across this uh, this statement by the comedian Emo Phillips uh, this last week. Uh, He said, in a conversation with a person I recently met, I asked, are you Protestant or Catholic? My new acquaintance replied, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He answered, Baptist. I said, me too. I said, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Me too, I shouted. We continued to go back and forth, and I finally asked, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1869 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He replied, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic. (laughs) All it takes is a river uh, to divide us. And when communication stops, it's easy for us to draw the conclusion, let's fight. Let's fight. And clearly that's what's uh, uh, happening here. As I mentioned earlier, the bulk of our passage, however, uh, addresses the issue, how do you make it right when it's gone bad? And here's where I can never stop uh, learning some uh, great principles in this text. Uh, Two fundamental issues here, uh, truth and love. And um, I think we can understand that almost any division that we see in the Church of Jesus Christ is going to center around the issue of truth and love. The truth folks uh, are always going to be accused by the love folks of being too rigid, too hard, too demanding, too judgmental. And, of course, the love folks are going to be accused by the truth folks of not being interested in the truth. You're just all this lovey, wishy-washy, liberal whatever, and you don't care about what really matters. And so we go back and forth. And interestingly enough, in this passage, uh, we find that the Western tribes represent the truth, 
That's their commitment. Uh, And the eastern tribes, the two and a half tribes, they're all about unity. Uh, They're all about love. And uh, before we get into this, just by way of observation, they're both right. And therein lies the challenge. How do you somehow stay committed to truth uh, without losing sight of love? Well, first, uh, let's talk about the truth, folks. We make make our relationships right when we're committed to the truth. Uh, Chapter uh, 22, then, starting with verse 13. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes, uh, each uh, the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. Just as a footnote here, this is the, uh, the uh, same uh, Phineas who on one occasion, because he found out that there was an Israelite who was having a relationship with a Moabite woman and it wasn't right, uh, he marched right into the tent, ran his spear through the man and into the stomach of the woman. So this was a truth fanatic, you know, here. Uh, he's going to go find out what the truth is, and he's taking ten leaders with him to determine uh, the, the truth. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben and Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Uh, the sin of Peor refers to the time when uh, Balaam was doing his work and he convinced the Israelites uh, to uh, engage in uh, relationships with unbelievers. And then they also got involved in idolatry. So we're thinking of that incident that's described for us in the book of Numbers. Up to this very day, we have included ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community. Remember what happened with Achan? It wasn't just Achan that suffered. It was all of us uh, that suffered. Uh, If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land. There's this little humor. You know, God's on our side, not on your side. Just come over to where we are. Where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God, which was where the tabernacle was in, in Shiloh. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarded the devoted things, did not the wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. You see what's at stake here? If you're disobedient to God, it affects every one of us, even those of us who are on the west side of Jordan. So Eliezer is coming and he is laying it out for the two and a half tribes because truth matters. You say, why does it matter? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those are the words of Jesus. That's why it matters. There was a Marxist, an atheist, Eugene Genovese, who made this statement. It takes one to know one. He made that statement in reference to uh, liberal theologians. He, He says, when I read much Protestant theology and religious history today, I have the warm feeling that I'm in the company of fellow non-believers. Um, I, I can just add as a footnote, uh, years ago when Joan and I were in Islamabad, Pakistan, we had the, the opportunity to go through the great mosque that's in Islamabad, and I got a chance to meet with one of the leaders of the mosque, and we started talking about the Islamic faith and Christianity and had a refreshing conversation. I always enjoy 
uh, those kinds of conversations. He took me into the bookstore uh, and said, I, I've got a book that I want you to read. I said, I'll happily read anything that you ask me to read. You read some of the things I ask you to read. So uh, he gave me a book that was discrediting Christianity and the basis uh, for the Islamic faith discrediting Christianity is liberal theology. When liberals question the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which they do, well, then what can there be to Christianity? When liberals question the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, well, how can we claim there's anything to this religion was the point of this uh, Islamic leader. Uh, that is also the very point uh, that uh, Genovese is, uh, is making as well. Uh, Gerd Ludemann, prominent German uh, theologian um, who has written several books, uh, has himself said he does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, does not believe in the virgin birth of Christ, does not believe in the miracles of Jesus Christ, and ultimately came to the point where he said, I can no longer describe myself as a Christian. A Christian is someone who prays to Christ and believes what is promised by Christian doctrine. So I ask myself, do I pray to Jesus? Do I pray to the God of the Bible? And I answer, I don't do that. He went on to declare that Christians' description of Jesus as Lord of the world are arrogant and ignore reality. He continued, I don't think Christians know what they mean when they proclaim Christ as Lord of the world. That's a massive claim. If you look at that seriously, you would probably have to be a fundamentalist. And for those of you who don't know, that'd be kind of like us uh, here uh, in this church. If you can't be a fundamentalist, then you should give up Christianity. That's his claim. So here is a liberal theologian saying, I don't think it's true. But if I were to think it was true, it would compel me to go to a church like ours. That's what he's saying. Truth matters. Even uh, liberal theologians uh, can recognize that. Well, how do we determine what's true then? Well, that's kind of an obvious question. Uh, if we're asking uh, what's true about God, it would be his book, wouldn't it? Uh, we uh, determine what's true based upon what the Bible tells us not based upon our opinions of things. Chuck Colson has made this observation about a religious leader in another denominational group. It was a, in fact, it was a bishop, Peter James Lee, who made this statement. If you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. You say, which group would he associate with in our story? It would be the two and a half tribes, because unity always trumps truth. Well, that is not the perspective of this passage. Uh, truth matters. Well, if I need to ask, what does God say in this text? What else do I need to ask? What else I need to ask is, uh, from the perspective of the nine and a half tribes, what did you say? Now, this is just kind of foundational stuff to communication. I've said this on a number of occasions. Norm Wright, in his excellent book, Communication Key to Marriage, uh, has a chapter that in and of itself is worth the uh, purchase of the book. Uh, and the title of that chapter is, uh, What's That I Never Heard You Say? Uh, in that chapter, uh, he reminds us that as we communicate, there are six messages that people can hear when we talk. They can hear what I meant to say, and if they hear what I meant to say, well, then hallelujah. You know, we've... Uh, you know, we got uh, truth. They can also hear what I actually said, which is not what I meant to say. And you can draw the wrong conclusion by what I say, because I don't always say what I mean. Uh, thirdly, you can hear 
what you hear. Uh, we may get a committee of experts together and analyze what I say and say, could I have said it better? And they all would say, oh, no, you said it perfectly. But if you didn't hear what I really meant to say, you're still not going to get it. Now, the fourth thing is uh, you can hear what you think I said. Now we're doing some interpreting. I know what George said, but I know George and I know what he really meant. You know, he didn't, he didn't mean that. And so now we're getting to the interpretation. This often happens in relationships when we've been hurt or wounded and we know what our spouse is thinking or we know what our children are thinking. So we discount what they say because we got this other grid that we use uh, that helps us interpret what they really meant to say. And so uh, we use that. And then, of course, uh, we can draw conclusions on what someone means by what someone else tells us about what they meant to say. Now we're getting other people involved. What did you hear what George said? Here's what he said. And I know it. And I just pass this on. And then you can compound that, you know, uh, even further. The point is we should never, ever be surprised if someone doesn't hear what we say. It's a lot easier for people to get wrong what we say than it is for them to get it right. And uh, there's, a, there's a principle here that I, I see in this text. Now, you, you can look at this, and you look in this text for the two and a half tribes to say, You liars! You liars! We never were trying to build this altar to uh, violate our, our trust with you. You liars! How dare you call us that way? And then them focusing their attention on, We never said that. We never did that. And you don't see that in this text. Now, I think God in His grace... Uh, enable the representatives of the two and a half tribes to get it right. If someone is challenging my motives or my intentions, I should never be surprised by that. Why would they? Communication is very difficult to do. So that rather than pointing my finger back at the accuser, which is going to add more division, um, let's find out uh, what the truth is. Let's ask, what did you really mean to say? Well, how do you go about getting at that? A couple of Practical suggestions from the text. How about if you go directly to the person and ask them? Verse 15. Uh, that's what happens here. Uh, you see that the conclusion was uh, the two and a half tribes are guilty of heresy. Let's go kill them. And in interpersonal relationships, I know this happens to me. I'm sure it happens to you. There are occasions when we hear something or we react to something and our immediate emotional response is kill, sick them. And in this text, uh, we find out before they're ready to kill, somebody says, maybe we ought to talk first. Find out if what we're so sure is absolutely true is really the truth. Uh, maybe we ought to go directly to the person and ask them. And so they do that uh, in, uh, in verse 15. Now, we can pause and say, that's hard to do. It's hard to do in, in marriages. It's hard to do in families. It's hard to do in the church uh, because there are so many emotional things that are at stake you don't want to go to somebody and, and get into an emotional kind of deal where they might now accuse you of being a liar, who knows uh, what. So it's a lot easier to talk to somebody else, you know, about the person that's upsetting us, whether that be our spouse or whether it be our kids or whether it be someone uh, at work or someone in the church. That's the easy thing to do. But what does Jesus tell us? Well, same thing. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 uh, if you've got something against your brother, you need to go to your brother. Go to your brother in private and speak to your brother uh, privately. And if that doesn't work, well, take some uh, other folks with you. And if that doesn't work, well, then take it to the church. I mean, that's the process. But step one is always going directly to 
uh, the individual. That's the that's the right thing. By the way, just as a footnote, I'm so thankful uh, that John Vauder preceded me here because during the course of of John's ministry, uh, that rule from Matthew 18 was uh, laid down as the foundational principle uh, regarding how we do business uh, in this church. And it sure has made my life easier uh, and the life of other pastors easier when we know we got leaders in the church that are going to say, we're going to do this biblically. Uh, we're going to follow uh, the right way of, of, of handling things. So I so, uh, so appreciate the mindset of our church that way. Verse 16, we find they speak frankly. They're not beating around the bush. You know, we think you're guilty of heresy. They just lay it right out there. Uh, now, that had to be hard to do because you can imagine you're going uh, with uh, soldiers you fought with for two and a half years, 40,000 of them. Uh, and you're going to say, we think you're guilty of heresy. Now, if you had been a part of the two and a half tribes, someone's pointing your finger at you and say, you know, you've given your life for seven long years fighting for the cause of, of God. And you've done it in a territory that's not even yours. Because your property is over here. It was already secured. And now these, these guys have the audacity to come and challenge your motives and say, we don't really think you're all that sincere about this. We think that you're heretics. It had to be as hard for them to hear uh, as it was uh, for the nine and a half tribes to say. But again, as you look at this, you find out uh, that the two and a half tribes say, if indeed you're right, if what we're doing was heresy, if indeed we were trying to sacrifice at these altars, well, then kill us now. Because we stand for truth, too. And uh, we wouldn't tolerate that either. So uh, they are not taking offense by this. They're uh, hearing the frank response um, and um, uh, encouraging unity. Verse 19, uh, they're speaking graciously uh, to one another. One can look at the invitation in verse 19. Uh, well, if you're not happy on the east side of the Jordan River, why don't you come on the west side of the Jordan River? You can read that a couple of ways, I suppose. You know, was this, was this a snide remark uh, or was it a gracious invitation? You know, uh, rather than our fighting one another, why don't you just come back over on our side of the river? Uh, we can all worship at Shiloh together. Uh, we can be one big happy uh, family together. Uh, why don't you just come over uh, and, uh, and be with us? You look at that and you say, well, that's kind of like what we read in Corinthians, isn't it? Love uh, bears all. Love believes all. Love hopes all. Love uh, endures all. Well, that's the one side of it. We need to be committed to truth. But I think especially for those of us in our denomination, we need to hear the other side. Verses 21 through 34 is now the perspective of the two and a half tribes, and it's unity that's at stake. Uh, where does love fit into the picture? It's one thing to stand for truth, but if you stand for truth and you do it in a way that's unloving, well, then there's still going to be disunity. So um, let's talk about the importance of unity and love. Why does unity matter? Well, verse 24 in our text, uh, one of the reasons that unity uh, matters uh, is that disunity can lead us to separate ourselves from true believers. Verse 24. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? And we wanted to be a part of the camp. Unity matters to us, says the uh, two and a half tribes. Uh, Reese Witherspoon, who played June Carter uh, in the movie uh, Walking the Line, describes the benefit of church attendance for her. I was raised going to church every Sunday, and I go to church most Sundays with my kids. For me, where I'm at in my career, so many people want to put you in a place 
that you're not real and treat you like you're not real. For me, it's a great experience of grounding. And I stand next to people who have nothing and some who have everything. And we all treat each other the same because we're all the same. It's just like a little weekly reminder. You say, well, that's the way church is supposed to be, isn't it? A place that no matter who we are, no matter what our background, we recognize before Jesus Christ we're the same. And that's what the two and a half tribes are saying. We want that. Disunity can lead some to even lose the faith is another issue. Uh, as you look at verse 25 of the text, a second reason why uh, it was important for us to do this altar as a witness, I, you know, they're concerned that some might say you have no share in the Lord, last part of the verse, so that your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. One of the implications of disunity is there might be some people who lose the faith when we stop loving one another. Maybe this is a curious place to find this kind of an illustration, but rock musician uh, Trent Reznor, uh, in commenting on uh, religion, he's the uh, lead musician of the band Nine Inch Nails. Uh, he was talking about his anti-religious stance and how it contributed to his own depre- depression, and he says, in my head that spilled over into utter chaos outlook, uh, I said, I don't need anything. I don't need anyone. I don't need to believe there's any reason to anything. It was a pretty self-centered approach. I was lonely and had a bleak outlook on everything. I think people have an inherent need for belonging to feel they're a part of something. So two and a half tribes are saying, we want to be a part of you. Unity matters to us. And, of course, in the church, uh, it should matter to us as well. So if it matters, how do you get it? What do we need to do to promote unity? Uh, Verse 27, uh, first the conviction Uh, that we're on the same team. Uh, On the contrary, uh, it is a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary, that is Shiloh, and then ultimately uh, Jerusalem when the temple is built, with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share uh, in the Lord. So step one is the conviction. We are on the same team. That's our whole point. That's why we did this altar. So it would be a witness that we're on the same team. Uh, Years ago, uh, former Speaker of the House, uh, Sam Rayburn, heard that he had terminal cancer. He shocked everyone in Washington, D.C. when he announced that he was going back to his small town of uh, Bonham, Texas. People said to him, Ray, they've got great uh, facilities, finest facilities here in Washington, D.C. Why go back to that little town? Rayburn's response speaks to the priceless importance of community because he said, because in Bonham, Texas, they know if you're sick and they care when you die. Now, that's a description of the church. At least it ought to be a description of the church. Love and unity matters in the church, and this ought to be the place where people care when you are sick and they know when you die. Second principle in this text in establishing unity is... uh, the conviction that we dare not commit acts that reflect unfaithfulness to the Lord. There's no dispute on either uh, set of tribes here. Uh, verse uh, 31 of uh, uh, chapter 22. And Phineas, son of Eliezer the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. What does he mean by that? You've rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. I think what he is saying is, uh, the nine and a half tribes just about did something stupid. 
we just about went to war and killed you all. And uh, that would have been wrong before God for us to be uh, fighting when we didn't have a good reason to fight. So you have rescued us uh, from the judgment that we uh, could have had by virtue of doing something uh, that was wrong. So uh, it's important not to be unfaithful uh, to the Lord. Josh McDowell, apologist, author and speaker, uh, says it this way. Tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I'm convinced the truth will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you are worth the risk. Tolerance seeks to be inoffensive. Love takes risk. Tolerance glorifies division. Love seeks unity. Tolerance costs nothing. Love costs everything. One uh, final principle on establishing unity in the church is in verse 34. And the Reubenites, the Gadites, gave the altar this name. A witness between us that the Lord, Yahweh is the name for God that means he's among us, the, the God who is among us, is Elohim, the God who created the universe. So the altar is to tell us, to remind us, the Lord is God. Say, what does that mean? Uh, e. Stanley Jones uh, made this statement that I think helps us understand this text. Talk about what you believe, and you could have disunity. Talk about whom you believe, and you'll have unity. It's about Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, I, I can look at the principles in this text and remind myself when I am being wrongly criticized, this wrongly in, in my mind, my immediate reaction is the same as yours. You know, I want to fight or I want to do something. It's how dare people impugn my integrity and uh, whatever. And, you know, God keeps reminding me, George. Now, remember, uh, there are six messages people can get when they hear you speak, five of which are going to lead them to wrong conclusions. So don't be surprised if you say things or do things uh, th uh, that are misinterpreted. Why should you be surprised? Uh, and also, George, remember that the enemy's method in causing disunity in the home, in the family, uh, in the church, and where we work, is always the same. He hasn't had to come up with a new tactic. The tactic that he's always found to be effective is pitting us against one another, getting us to point our finger at somebody else. And the minute that finger is pointed at me, my immediate reaction is point the finger back, which is going to cause more finger pointing. Uh, and somewhere it's got to stop. Where somebody's got to say, well, let's, let's look to Jesus. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Uh, let's remember uh, that the enemy's way is division. And I am not going to get him to let me play this game or make me play this game. Uh, I'm going to recognize uh, that the methodology has never changed. And I'm not going to say, well, these people out here are the enemies because they misinterpreted something I said or something that I did. No, the enemy is always the same. Uh, it's Satan himself. Let's not forget that. Uh, in conclusion, Matthew Henry has said, Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but the truth. 
I think that captures what this passage is about. We need to be about unity. We need to be about love, but not at the expense of, of truth. Uh, Alan Redpath's commentary on Joshua is one of the commentaries I've been reading as I've been going through this series. If you don't know Alan Redpath, he was a pastor at Moody Church in Chicago for a lot of years. He's very pastoral in his uh, commentary. Uh, doesn't always get into the intricacies of the text because he's more interested in application than he is in the intricacies of the text. But he's got a lot of good uh, sense about how to apply stuff. And I leave you with uh, his application uh, for Joshua chapter 22. Uh, He says that if indeed we understand the implications of what's being said in this uh, passage, if you really want to have unity in your marriage, unity in your home, unity in the church, unity uh, where you work, you need to remember the acronym THINK. It will eliminate gossip from your life and the pain that comes from gossip to you. Uh, The T is, before you say something, you ask yourself the question, is it true? Is what I'm about to say true? Now, maybe like Eliezer, uh, you you need to send a delegation to find out what the truth is. Instead of just assuming because you heard it, uh, that automatically makes it true. Didn't make it true in this passage because the nine and a half tribes uh, heard it. It's not necessarily true because you heard it either. So uh, first, is it true? Uh, The H is, is it helpful? Now, Paul expresses that same thought this way in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Do not let any unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word uh, that is going to lead to edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to the hearers. So, as I'm about to speak, is this going to build up? Is it going to offer uh, grace? Uh, one of the things that I've had to, to learn, particularly in my uh, relationship with Joan is there a lot of times it's better for me to just keep my mouth shut because there are occasions, especially if I'm upset, stuff's going to come out of my mouth. That's not wholesome. <laughs> that's not edifying. That's not going to give grace. Uh, so sometimes the very best thing for me to do is say, Oh Lord, help me to get the right perspective and say nothing. Uh, I guarantee that if we're emotional and we're upset, uh, there's a pretty good chance that unwholesome words are going to come out of our mouth. So, uh, Button it up, uh, especially at those times. Is it helpful? Uh, the I is, is what I'm about to say, inspiring. Is, uh, is it going to be motivational? Is it going to help somebody grow? Is it going to help me grow? And uh, certainly a good uh, uh, principle. Uh, the N is, is it necessary? Does this need to be said? Uh, need to be said because what I'm going to say is going to help somebody get right with God? Does it need to be said because uh, it ultimately is going to help build uh, the church? Uh, Those would be the uh, foundations for deciding uh, if it's necessary. And finally, the K is, is it kind? Is it kind? Uh, Am I going to say something that is graceful, uh, something that I could even see Jesus uh, saying? So before you speak, especially when you're upset, why don't we think? And in this passage of Scripture, as we look at the conclusion, what should we be thinking most of all? Yahweh, the God who is present, is indeed Elohim, the God who created the universe. Therefore, let us look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Keep our eyes upon him. Stay committed to the truth, but the kind of truth that leads us to love one another. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its relevancy to all of life. God, as I, I know as we've come here today, Some of us are hurting because of a relationship that uh, 
somehow was bad this last week. Maybe it's a relationship with one of our children. We had a, a, a discussion, argument that didn't go well. We want those discussions to go well, but the truth is it just didn't. Or, or maybe our pain comes from our relationship with a spouse who doesn't understand us. We may even be wondering if they really care about us, especially this week. Or, or maybe it's something that happened at work this week or something that's going on in the church. Father, we know that the problems that the people of Israel faced in Joshua 22 are not unique uh, to 1300 B.C. They happen every day in our lives. And the principles that we see in this text are, are the principles still we need to use uh, to resolve difficulties. So, God, I pray that as uh, people are pointing their fingers at us, that we may have the perspective of the two and a half tribes. Uh, they were ready to say, now, if your uh, conclusions about me are right, I, I can agree. I can see why you would be upset. But know this, that my commitment is to the Lord. I, I want to grow in him. I want to worship him. And I want to be part of the team. God, keep us uh, ever having that mindset. Uh, and, and, Father, the many ways in which it seems that the enemy tries to get us off track, uh, to be hurt by what is said or what is done, or for others to be hurt by what we say or what we do. Uh, God, forgive us all of that. And today, lead us to Jesus. Father, some of us uh, today may need to do some confessing too. Confess some sin that we committed when we said something this last week that was hurtful. Or we made some judgment this last week that was wrong. Or somehow we contributed uh, to pain in our family or pain in some relationship. God, we're so thankful that we can come before you and we can be honest with you and admit our mistakes and know that you forgive us. God, may we wallow in that forgiveness today. And rejoice in what we know is ours uh, through Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.